Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue with a man that was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, it is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretched out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. The title, God Clashing with Religion or Religion Clashing with God, is maybe odd for some of us because for many in the world, they probably don't differentiate religion and God and God and religion. But it's interesting when you read the scriptures that God actually hates religion, especially empty praise and empty worship, especially when religion becomes corrupt or toxic or fuels injustice and evil. And so when you look at the gospel teaching, what always strikes me is that Jesus always had issues with only one type of people. It wasn't the drunks, the prostitutes, it wasn't the rich. Jesus' main issue were religious leaders, religion-pushing people who have forgotten how to love and care. And then if you look at the Old Testament, you see over and over again, God is condemning religion. Obviously, false idol worship, but also his own people. He said, you worship me with em- your lips, and you give me empty praise. I don't want any of this. I desire obedience, not sacrifice. So God hates religion that's hollow. And so when we say God clashes with religion, we need to distinguish that, oh, everything with God can be religious, but not everything religious is necessarily of God. And so... God wants a relationship with us. That's the defining difference between religion and what God desires. So generally, religion is this. And some of you may be kind of uh, in that program mode. Religion is that it's a ritual that keeps us in the right place with God. So we obey. We follow rituals. We, we, we do the regulations to obtain God's favor. So it sounds like this. If I do this then God will accept me. And I hear this once in a while, I've been really bad, I need to go back to church. Uh, As if like, if I go to church, God will start smiling at me again. And so, or because I did this, God is angry with me. That's a very religious mindset, that our relationship with God is conditional, or our acceptance to God is based on our performance. Christianity, on the other hand, it's like a love relationship. Some of you who are parents, you know this, um, you may feel like this, but I know all, all of you parents are good parents. If your kids disobey, you don't go, today I don't love you. You don't say that. That's cruel. You always love them. You, you may have a broken or just a hard time today, but your relationship with your children never changes. And Christianity is this calling God Abba, Father. It's calling God Dad. 
is calling, calling Jesus Savior. And so we're in this relationship of love purely by God's grace. And it, it doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes we feel like, don't we have to be good? And no, God accepts us through Jesus Christ just the way you are. And he doesn't keep you there, but that's the way we're accepted. So we never got to God because of worship and good behavior, morality. We didn't get to become close with God because you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or because you, you read the Bible 50 times, God accepts you. God accepts us purely on what Jesus Christ has done. And so Christianity is love, and it's expressed in serving. It's expressed in action of love. And so I'm saying that because you can see in today's text why Jesus was so angry and grieved in his heart at religious leaders. So today, let's look at Mark. And Mark's fascinating. There are how many gospels in the Bible? Gospel books? There are four. Let's name them. Matthew, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so the gospel of Mark was written by a guy named Mark. His name was John Mark. And he's actually... uh, discussed about in the book of Acts. He was a traveling companion with Apostle Paul and Barnabas, and they, they would travel together. And I didn't really, it didn't occur to me that how vivid this was. The Gospel of Mark was written in 50 AD, 50, mid-50s AD. That's within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So today is 2022. How many of you remember 2002? Pretty clearly. Some of you probably could tell where you were. I, I was in New Jersey. I was a youth pastor at a Korean church in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I had about 50 youth group kids. I remember just first year of marriage, Kathy and I went to a cruise for our one year. I remember 2002 very well. This was written 20 years within Jesus' death and resurrection. And the reason why it's so vivid is not only because it was written within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. Guess where Mark got his source? Apostle Peter. He traveled with Apostle Peter, and Peter told him all the things that he saw. That's why Mark was able to write about transfiguration and all the intimate conversations. I always wondered, didn't you wonder? Who was writing down all these stories? Well, Peter was telling Mark. And so on a side note, this is just for those history nerds. In 70 AD, something big happened in Jerusalem. Rome came and sieged it and destroyed the temple. It was like to the Jews and Christians, revelation. It was the end of the world. But what's interesting is Mark never, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never mentions this apocalyptic event. Do you know why? Because it was written so close to Jesus. It was written before. This is why the Bible is so credible. This is why you can't make this stuff up. Anyway, that's a side note. So anyway, uh, John, by the way, Apostle John on Patmos, he wrote all this stuff. All this is coming. So one commenter believes that the key theme of the Gospel of Mark is this. Ready? He thinks the key theme in in Mark is discipleship, which is very interesting in light of today's text. Because discipleship is what? It's a close relationship with Jesus. It's a life marked by holding to Jesus' life and teaching. It's a life, discipleship is being devoted to Jesus, growing in trust, 
and loving Jesus, and even at the highest cost, willing to give up everything, your comfort, your convenience, your life for Jesus. So Mark's theme here, this commentator says, he thinks it's, it's discipleship. So let's go into Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn with me. We're going to focus on these six verses and the previous chapter, you'll see. And verse 6 begins with this. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. I'm starting at the end of that paragraph. How to destroy him. So I want to start with that because we're only at the third chapter of Mark. And what do the religious leaders want to do? <laughs> right at the beginning of the ministry, the religious leaders are saying, this dude, Jesus, needs to die like yesterday. So we should be asking, why are they so angry? Why are they so threatened? Why are they so uh, harsh? And a lot of these religious leaders were Sadducees. There were Pharisees. There were scribes. But mostly the encounter Jesus had were Pharisees. And to understand Pharisees, imagine with me. Can you use your imagination? Imagine that you thought and believed the way you lived, you perfectly followed all of God's law. You never broke it. Imagine with me, because you do that so well that you don't break God's law at all, you are accepted by God because of your performance. You feeling good about yourself yet? Third, imagine because of that, you look at the chumps next to you and the people in the street who don't go to temple, who don't read the, read the Torah, they're all miserable low lives compared to you. So what does this do to you if you have that mindset? It slowly starts creeping in what's called pride, arrogance, self-righteousness, judgmentalism, and then it makes you blind. It makes us blind to ourselves. It makes us blind to the world because we are so self-absorbed and comfortable with our religious status. So they're obsessed with keeping the law that they created 600 more laws in addition to Moses' laws that God gave to perfect day-to-day -day living. So let me give us, and some of these are kind of shocking. So you all know the fourth commandment says keep the Sabbath, right? Don't work, rest, as God rested on the seventh day. So that's a good command. The Pharisees took that and turbocharged it to this. So let me give you some examples. Your home, your brother's playing, he falls and breaks his arm, and it's the Sabbath. You know, well, the first thing you're going to assess, is this a life-threatening injury? No, he just broke his arm. Okay, good. It's the Sabbath. Just pour water on it. We'll go to the doctor tomorrow. Because if you were to mend it, you are working, and the Pharisees would say you are a lawbreaker. Second, on the Sabbath, um, William Barclay gives this analogy. If a wall falls on a person, right, one of those retaining walls, and the person is crushed under it, and it's a Sabbath, you are allowed to remove debris, but get this, in order to check if he's alive. If he's alive, you are permitted to remove the debris and rescue him, and it won't be considered work. But if he's dead, you leave the poor sap under the wall, and you come back the next day and retrieve his body, because you are not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Now, I'll give you one more example. This, was, this is just mind-blowing. In one case, there was a Jewish rebellion, 
and a Jewish military, and they were fighting against the Syrians, and they were caught in a cave. The Syrians came, and it was the Sabbath. They refused to fight and work on the Sabbath, so they all got slaughtered and burned in the cave. So, this is the, the law, laws that were hyper-inflated uh, to fit in this legalistic way. So, religion is ritual of keeping the rules and law for God's acceptance. They were so sure that they want to follow the law so God would accept them. They were living in fear, and we call this legalism, religious, religiosity. So, along comes Jesus. Along comes Jesus, and he shows them good news. He shows them true religion. And it's important to note this. I want to say this. This is not part of the main sermon, but it's important to. Jesus never, he never removes God's laws. He never undercuts God's laws. In fact, Jesus fulfills all God's laws while uplifting this simple thing called compassion. Can we say compassion? <laughs> Humanity and love and kindness. So he does something that they were not familiar with. He upholds the law and says, yes, no one should be a lawbreaker. But what he does is he brings into it compassion that the religious leaders of his time completely forgot. So turn with me, if you have your Bible, to Mark 2 right before it. And I'm going to give you just, we see the progression of why the religious people hated him. Verse 5, you know this story? Uh, four friends were trying to get to Jesus. He's teaching in a house. It's too crowded. So where do they go through? The roof. They come in through the roof. And then verse uh, Mark 2, 3. The, the Mark, Mark 2, 3. Wait. And so they come in. And when they could not get a hold of him, Jesus saw their faith. And he says to the, the man, the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. The religious people lost their minds. <laughs> Who is he to think he can say, I forgive you my sins? He claimed to be God. But we see something that God is showing all of us about religion. Sin is forgivable. And Jesus Christ is the, not only just the one who could forgive it, he is willing to forgive sinners. Like, we hear that so often we forget, but let that sink in. Our God is not a God who forgives sins, but he's willing to forgive sins. And so the religious leaders are having a fit. Verse 13, right after that, Jesus goes to a man, Levi, a tax collector. What does he say to him? Hey, let's go eat. So he's sitting together with tax collectors and sinners. They were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Uh, friends, raise your hand if you would love churches to be filled with broken people, sinners. I wish we all raised our hand, yes? <laughs> like, this is where they belong. This is where they're welcome. And so... Instead of seeing that, verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know what Pharisees literally translates into? The word Pharisee? Separated ones. Because they wanted to keep themselves separate from the dirtiness of the world. And what does Jesus do? Where are the sinners? Let's go. Where would he, Jesus be today? I think he'll be hanging out at the bars. 
He'll be hanging down at Beach Boulevard where there's a lot of ladies of the night. He'll be hanging down at Skid Row. He'll be hanging out at the places that religious people don't usually go to. And so this is Jesus and the Pharisees are getting just amazed and angry. And Jesus says to them this famous word, those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lastly, uh, all in Mark 2, Jesus and his men are hungry, so they're picking grain. And guess what day it was? It was a Sabbath. And so the religious leaders are, are going, oh, my goodness, this guy. He needs to die. His, his students, disciples, are picking grain, and no one's allowed to pick. You're allowed to eat, but you can't pick grain. And so Jesus gives them this story about, do you remember King David? He and his men were hungry, so they were held, holed up in a temple, and there was food that was set at the temple as an as a offering to God. It was not meant to be eaten by the public. But what does David do? He eats it. Because, surprise, God cares about the hungry. <laughs> God cares about the famished. God doesn't always care about our rituals. He cares about when someone is aching for food, you feed them. And so the religious leaders were finding themselves clashing with God because Jesus is God. So somewhere along the line, religion can devolve into merely a ritual for us, and we forget to love God and love people. I'm going to repeat that one more time because I see this creeping in my heart even today. Somewhere along the line, Religion can devolve into merely a ritual, and we forget to love God, and we forget to love people. It becomes an ideology. It becomes just a one-position political stance, and we forget to listen and see the people and their pains, and we are so secured with our own self-righteousness because at least I'm not a criminal. At least I'm not in jail. And so Jesus makes these bold statements about religious people. And I am so deathly scared because I'm a pastor that, God, am I one of these people? I have to check myself and repent. Matthew 23, 3. For they preach but do not practice. For they preach but do not practice. And I'm not talking about just preachers here too, right? Some of you are good at preaching too at home. You preach to your kids. And kids see, do you practice what you preach? Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, Jesus doesn't hold punches. For you tithe, good, mint and dill and fumin, you tithe, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What's the weightier matters of the law? Jesus says, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So what is he saying? Is he saying tithing is bad? No. Tithing is good. Go to church is good. But you've done that and you forgot justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We should be aching and directing that in prayer, and hopefully God calls us into action when we see injustice, when we see a crisis and we can't surely solve it as a small, humble church, but what can God do is unimaginable if we could offer ourselves to say, God, I see it, send me. So members of CPCLM, 
do you realize that we gather on Sundays not only to just have a worship service, but to serve one another? Members, I want to say that again. We gather at church not to have a nice service and go home and start the week, but this is where a lot of people come, and we get to serve one another. I still think that we still need institutional churches for this one reason. Guess where people who are desperate go to? I still think some of them will still go to church. And who's going to receive them? Well, that's why we have a pastor. <laughs> Raise your hand if you're a minister. Raise your hand if you're a minister. Guess what Presbyterians believe? Every single Christian baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are a minister. A minister is not a reverend or a pastor. Minister, it simply means a servant. Again, raise your hand if you are a minister in the Presbyterian Church. Yes. Who serves? We all do. This is where we turn from religion to Christianity. Not because there's a need, but because we're compelled. We're compelled, we're gripped. Um, there's a man named Shane Claiborne. He started this new uh, movement called the New Monasticism. Um, it looks like a modern-day John the Baptist, very, very hippie-looking guy. <laughs> he became an author, and he became pretty well-known. He started a church by living in the poorest part of a city and just gathered people and fed them, and then it became an organization. And then it became a church. Fascinating. But I want to read to you what he wrote in his book, The Irresistible Revolution, Shane Claiborne. I asked participants who claimed to be strong followers of Jesus, quote-unquote, whether Jesus spent time with the poor. Nearly 80% said yes. Later in the survey, I sneaked in another question. I asked this same age group of strong followers whether they spent time, whether they spent time with the poor, and less than 2% said they did. I learned a powerful lesson. We can admire and worship Jesus without doing what he did. We can applaud what he preached and stood for without caring about the same things. We can adore his cross without taking up ours. I had come to see that the great tragedy of the church is not that rich Christians do not care about the poor, but that rich Christians do not know the poor. Man, I, I'm just convicted by reading that. And so what is the church? We are called to not only proclaim an idea and theology and say, hey, we're going to heaven, but we are called to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to go to the homeless, the prisoners, the outcasts. And so the church gets exciting. That's where I want to hang out. I mean, that's where the story is. That's where I want to be. So Mark chapter 3, I'm not, this is actually not going to be too long. Jesus comes to the synagogue, a man with a withered hand comes, and it means he wasn't born with that. It's just something happened where he lost his power. And so the verse 2 tells us, and they watched Jesus. Religious people are so good at seeing what other people do wrong, yes? They're so good. They're experts in that. That's a sign of religious people. They don't look at themselves and go, you know, Billy, I need, I need to pray together with you. I'm struggling with some sins. Religious people are great at, <laughs> look at that guy. And it's in me, and I hate it. 
And so these religious people are looking to Jesus. Let's get him here to see whether he will heal him on the Sabbath. They couldn't care about the care less about the withered head man. They were just wondering, it's a Sabbath. Is he going to try to heal him? So Jesus says to the man, come here. But the ESV misses an important word. The better translation, it's in the Greek, and they just left it out. I don't know why. I'll read it from a different version. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Because I'm about to put on a show, but not to show off. But I'm, I want to make a point here. Verse 4, he said to them, the Pharisees, religious people, listen to this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Is it? Is it lawful to do good on Sabbath? Church? Yeah, right? I mean, that's the point of the question. No one's going to say, do evil. <laughs> Next question. Is it lawful to save on the Sabbath or to kill? And the Pharisees knew they're being trapped because the answer is obvious. And so, no surprise, verse 4, but they were silent. <laughs> and so, Jesus, what's he, what he's doing here is this. On the Sabbath, we do good. You don't violate the law when you're doing good. On the Sabbath, you don't violate the law when you're saving a per desperate person's life. And William Barclay makes this observation that blows my mind, and it really convicts us. William Barclay says, on this Sabbath, you have the Pharisees troubled that Jesus wants to heal a desperate man on the Sabbath. At the same time, what are they doing? They're plotting to kill an innocent man on the Sabbath. That blindness is what I fear in me for religious people like us. We're so caught up that we are so far from God and that we are seeing the speck in other people's eyes literally and we forget the doom that we bring. They were so caught up with Jesus healing on the Sabbath, they forgot they were plotting to kill and murder on the Sabbath. Pride goes before the fall. Self-righteous religion leads to blindness. Comfortable religion leads to paralysis. And convenient religion, which is American Christianity, I'm going to just say it, we love convenience and comfort. It leads to missing out on God's work in your life. We're too, we love comfort, comfort too much. Even online worship, for those who can come, they're like, I could just watch it later. For the elderly people, I love that they are able to join us in online worship. But for others, it's like, hey, I'll check it on that worship later. We are called to gather to serve and to be and to move. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And what's interesting about this is this. Did Jesus work in the Pharisee's definition? No, he didn't do anything. He just said, stretch out your hand. And so that's another beautiful image. That Jesus is not necessarily doing work. The man was the one that offered his hand, and it was healed. And Jesus' compassion and then juxtaposed with his anger at the hard-heartedness, is revealed. So what does this all mean? And just application is really short. Genuine religion is revealed in how we care for people. And the church said, come on, come on, 
Genuine religion <laughs> is revealed in how we care for people. And so we have progressives who may not even talk about Jesus and God and the Bible, but they're actually doing the work of caring for people. If we say we're biblical and we love the word of God, great. Are you doing what they're doing, though? I'd rather go to that church, even if they don't preach, if they're going to live it. But I'd rather have this. How about this? We proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We live as disciples following him to the great extent while we realize we exist on this planet to see people, to care for people, and to be other-focused. There's too many people who quit the church. Well, they didn't look at me. They didn't see me. I don't know. They're kind of just a click. And that's true. They could be. But why don't you join and serve and change that culture? There's too many pastors going to seminary today. Seminarians, I'm a little worried. They want to be the next Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley. They want to be Chuck Swindoll, Tim Keller. They want to go preach and start a new church. And I don't see them washing feet, picking up trash, looking after the uncool people, hanging out with those who the world says they're losers. I think true religion shows itself in how we treat those least of this. And this is what Jesus said. James 1, 26, 27, if you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Ouch. Verse 27, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God and Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Um, these bags here, by the way, you're probably wondering where they are. So funny. Two weeks ago, I, I was praying. I kept putting on my heart backpacks, backpacks. I was like, we need to do something about backpacks. The very next day, I get a text message from a pastor who said that there's a local organization called The Whole Child. They work with homeless families to help children have emotional, mental, physical wholeness. And they say, we need backpacks. Can your churches in La Mirada help out? So I said, Done. <laughs> How many do you need? They said 10. We would love to do more. That's all you need? They're like 10. And so the youth families, within 12 hours, said yes, put this together, and we're going to bless it after uh, we finish. But, like, I think, what if we're looking for ways, God, how can I be used in this community? And so ultimately, Christianity and religion divert in this. We are called to be either servants as Christianity, or we are just comfortable and content because we find our lifestyle being so impressive to God. I'd rather be this, servants. So let me end with this story. Um, a passage often referred in order to describe the sacrificial countercultural quality of the early church comes to us, interestingly enough, from one of its strongest critics, known later to history as Julian the Apostate. He was this high... Um, Roman emperor that was very despicable. So this guy, Emperor Julian, had begrudgingly acknowledged that the Christians, or the Galileans as he referred to them, took, took care of the needy far more so than its pagan counterparts, which led to many new converts. He was agitated by that. Why are these Christians so good at taking care of the needy? They're doing a better job than us. This concerned the emperor because it threatened Julian's attempt to restore the supremacy of the Roman pantheon. 
Most importantly, the passage describes just how powerful the church can be when it models the sacrificial love of Christ to his neighbor. This is what he wrote. These impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also. They welcome them with agape love. They attract them as children are attracted to cakes. Whilst the pagan priests neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. <laughs> He's angry. Why is he angry? Because these Galileans, touched by Jesus Christ, transformed by his mercy, are out there so selfless and focused on the people that are being ignored. He's actually angry that his government is not doing close to the job that they're doing. And if you look at history, you know why the early church grew? The Christians didn't just believe in a religion. They lived radical, selfless, generous lives. I don't want to be religious anymore. I want to be a Christ follower and serve and give as he did. I want to bless and be people-oriented while being God-centered. And that is our prayer for our church. That if a church could be God-centered and people-oriented, how can we not make a difference with the short life we get to live? Let's pray. So God, challenge us. Open our eyes and remove the temptation to be content because we went through the perfect Bible study or all the mission trips or we served and we're pretty good with ourselves and slowly we devolve into forgetting people, forgetting others and we love comfort and convenience. Forgive us if we have judgmental hearts. Change us. Make us see and, and not be like Pharisees who, who, who look to how other people are failing but Help us to become more and more every day by your spirit like Jesus. God, help us to present truth of the good news while radically showing generous love. God, you are a God who provides all that we need to do your work. We trust in that. Help us to simply say yes. Help us to simply to go and help us to simply see others first before ourselves. We pray for these backpacks and for the children that we receive it. As a new school year begins, we don't know their stories, but we know a lot of people are hurting. We pray for these backpacks and the kids that will wear it, that they would be literally protected, shielded, spiritually guided, and washed over in their well-being, that they would blossom and flourish. God, may you be glorified in that and help us continue to be part of your incredible mission in this world. These things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.